Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So today we're going to finish a series that we've been on since Easter, and it is called Catch You on the Flip Side. And this series is about death and the afterlife. And so we've covered a lot of different topics in this series. Um, We've talked about death. We've talked about heaven. We've talked about hell. And we've answered several questions that you submitted regarding this subject, death and the afterlife. So let's get to the main reason why we're talking about this morbid subject. And as we'll see today, sometimes difficult material regarding this subject. Here's the point. What you believe about death will affect your actions in life. Whatever view or views you have about death and the afterlife will in some way, even if you can't quite tell, it will have an effect on how you live this life here and now. And so again, we've covered a bunch of topics and answered a bunch of questions. And today, I'm going to attempt to tackle probably what I would say is the most difficult question that a person can ask regarding the subject of death and the afterlife. So a little heads up, it's going to be a little bit heavier today maybe than normal. I'm probably, uh, if I'm sensitive, not going to tell very many jokes today. Um, And it's a little bit difficult of a thing to get through. And there is quite a bit of scripture. And so um, you can open up to, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Romans 10. We'll be there a majority of our time today. We'll be kind of all over Romans. I kind of, here's the only joke I'll probably tell today. I thought about just getting up here and reading Romans chapters 1 through 10 as my sermon and then just dismissing because it will answer this question fairly well. But we're going to maybe not go that broad. I would encourage you, if you've not read Romans or not read it for a long time, read it. It is one of the most masterful works of logic in in the world ever i mean the way that paul makes his case for what he's trying to tell us is it's incredible okay and so i'd encourage you to read romans we're going to be mainly in romans 10 we're going to start kind of and go all over the place mainly in romans today because here's the question that we're going to attempt to answer and this was submitted by someone here at the church the question is What happens to people or groups who die without ever having an opportunity to hear the gospel? What happens to people who die without ever having an opportunity to hear the name of Jesus? What happens to those people? Heaven or hell? What what do we know about that? So what I'm going to do at the beginning for a minute here is lay a little bit of groundwork that I think every, every Christian should be able to agree on. And then from there, I can't make any promises, but we are going to keep it uh, scriptural. That's why we're going to have a lot of scripture today, because I'm trying not to give my thoughts or opinions, and this is something that I personally, emotionally sometimes wrestle with myself, um, and we'll talk about why as we get going. But let's lay a little bit of groundwork first, okay? A few, a few rules that we're going to play by uh, on this journey, okay? Guardrails here, if you will. The first thing to understand with this question is that everyone has sinned against God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So whether you've heard about Jesus or not, and you're without him, you're a sinner. Okay, All have sinned. Rule number one. 
Number two, everyone, everyone will be and must be punished for their own sin. Romans 6, 23, the first half of that verse, the wages of sin is death. What you and I rightly, justly receive for our sin, our rebellion against God is death, is punishment ultimately in eternity in hell. The second thing, and let me just say why that is real quick. The reason why is because God is holy, okay? He's also, not only is he holy, he is just. So because he's holy, he cannot uh, leave sin unpunished, okay? That goes against his holiness. It also goes against his justice. All sin is against him. It's an affront to him. It's a rebellion against him. So to be just, he must punish all sin and all sinners, equally okay that's god's righteousness holiness and his justice at the same time the third thing to set the ground rules here are is this here's the good news the rest of that verse jesus forgives everyone of sin who calls on him and frees them from this penalty and judgment so the wages of sin is death yes bad news good news the gift of the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord so i think pretty much for most if not all christians we can agree on, on this baseline, okay? All, everyone's a sinner. Everyone must be punished by sin, but everyone uh, can be freed from their sin and the judgment of sin through Jesus. Here's a key part to this question as we start to then look into specifically what about people who've never heard? Okay, there's a fourth. It's still a ground rule, but it gets a little bit murkier when we're talking about this specific topic, okay? The fourth thing to understand about sin and judgment is this. Jesus is the only way to receive salvation. John 14, verse 6, Jesus saying these words to his disciples, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then Peter, who was here at this moment, in one of the first sermons he gave in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So again, remember the question, what about people who've never had an opportunity? They live in some distant, remote village in Africa that no, one, no Christian has ever stepped foot into. What about these Amazonian villages in the middle of the jungle where no Christian has ever had access to, no missionary has ever gone to? What happens to them? Let me kind of put, give the, the cat's going to come out of the bag quickly, and then we'll kind of talk about why we're going to go this direction. But here's what I would say. These four ground rules always apply. Always apply. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone must be punished for their sin. Jesus offers freedom and forgiveness from our sin, but he is the only way to receive that freedom and forgiveness from sin. Okay? I'm just quoting scripture here, and that's, that's, the, that's what we're, the progression that we're seeing. So let's work through this a little bit, and that's where we're going to get into Romans chapter 10, and kind of we're going to go through it step by step here, and a few other passages mainly from Romans, and we're going to look and see maybe how Paul would flesh this out a little bit. Because what I've said so far, even for me, even having studied this many times, even having thought about this many times, even saying it again is almost like, ooh, like, are you saying what I think you're saying? And I probably am. And so we're going to look at how Paul would describe this. Romans 10, let's start at verse number one of Romans chapter 10. 
He says this, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. We've discussed this a little bit on Wednesday nights off and on the past few weeks. He says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So what Paul's doing here is sort of answering a secondary question that sometimes comes with this one. And so I want to tackle it for just a second because Paul sort of gets there and he will, he'll talk about it later as well. Another question that comes similar to this is, well, how are people saved before Christ? If, if Jesus is the only way and there was human history for a long time, what happens to all those people? Okay, and Abraham is a great example of this, and we read about this later on. He'll reference him here as well. Actually, this coming Wednesday night in James chapter 2, we'll, talk, we'll kind of review some of this material and talk more about it a little bit as well. In Hebrews 11, this question is answered in a way about Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. And also, uh, in James 2, it's talked about, we'll get to it. But in Romans 4, we go back in Romans a little bit, Paul's already answered that question. He, what, what about people who lived before Christ? How were they saved? How were they made righteous? And so let's look at Romans 4, uh, 22 through 25, and look at what I'm going to call salvation B.C. Okay, salvation B.C. Here's what it says, Romans 4, 22. Because of Abraham's faith, there's the answer to your question. Right there, faith. God counted him as righteous. When God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, catch this, it was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life, why? To make us right with God. God. We'll see this theme a little bit later on in Romans 10 again. So, Abraham is our great example. How were people saved before Christ? Well, not to be cute, but that he was saved, they were saved the same way that we are saved now. By grace, through faith. His faith was credited to him as righteousness, James said, or Paul says, James says, Hebrews also says. Here's how that looks, and it's hard for us to think of it in these terms, but here's how we have to grasp this, okay? We, so Jesus is like split time in half. Literally, he, this B.C. and A.D., Jesus split time in half. So people now, after Christ, we look back by faith at the cross, okay? That's easy to get. We get that. However, the thing that may not be so obvious but yet is still so true is that people before Jesus somehow in faith looked ahead to the cross. Now, they wouldn't have thought in those terms. Abraham didn't really think of it in those terms necessarily. But even here's what we, we did this uh, at the end of last year. If you were with us, we did a series called Greater at the end of last year. And the purpose of that series was to kind of illustrate this point, that some of the great Old Testament figures are what we would call types of Christ. They were precursors to the one who would ultimately come to fulfill everything that they did sort of in shadows. So Abraham's sac near sacrifice of his son 
is a prefigure of what Christ would come to do a couple thousand years later. Uh, Moses getting the law of God. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. So what Moses sort of was able to by faith see what was being done was fulfilled later on through Christ. So people uh, before Christ were still saved through faith. So you know, look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these people. They even, let me say these three particular, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the pillars of the Jewish faith, okay? And we've kind of adopted them as sort of maybe uncles. Um, they couldn't even have been saved through the law because they predated the law of Moses by hundreds of years. So some would say, well, you know, the Old Testament people, they were saved by obeying the law. Well, then what do you do about Abraham. There's no law for Abraham to follow. It wasn't about the law. Even Paul later on in Romans, he says it's not even because Abraham, who started the Jewish faith, the sign of being a Jew is circumcision, right? The physical sign. Well, he was declared righteous before that. So it's not, any, it's not the act of circumcision. It wasn't keeping the law, certainly, because all of these people, Joseph, right? I'm pretty sure he was saved, right? I'm pretty sure, but he predated the law. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob predated the law, so it wasn't obeying the law. It's not about being good enough. It's not about being a good person. It's not about following the law. It's not about being a moral, upright, upstanding person or good citizen. It's by grace through faith all the time, every time. And Paul argues here that faith is always a component. You see, for some, even when there was the law before Jesus, to some, maybe to many Jewish people, they would have seen the law as sort of just a ritual, right? It's just, you know, yeah, it's just what we do. We get up and go to the temple when a few times a year, and, you know, making sacrifice is just a thing that we do, but it's possible, and I would say probable, that even for many of them, their faith wasn't really in it. It was an, an empty religious exercise. So it's possible, then, that even those people who followed the law but didn't put faith in that, looking forward by faith to something greater that was yet to come, somehow, May not we would not maybe consider them saved, but there were many who did. They 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 had faith in not just a ritual, but this is like worship to God. This is not just a thing that we do just because, but it means something deeper and greater than that. There's even that clearly faith aspect even to the law before Jesus. They saw something greater behind the law, something that would be complete in the future. So there is an aspect of this salvation BC, if you will. Okay, and that's the best that I can maybe answer answer that question. But let's get back to the question about those now after Christ who have not heard. Let's pick it up at Romans 10 uh, verse 9. And this is again pretty clear here. Paul seems to be pretty clear about what he's saying. He says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. That's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. He goes on to say, Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul is clear here. Again, we've already said this, but he says it again. Salvation only comes through Jesus. He says, if you declare Jesus is Lord. He makes it a distinction here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. So what what I want to point out here about the gospel in reference to this question is that the gospel is 
inclusively exclusive. The gospel is unique in that it is inclusively exclusive. It's inclusive because it is for everyone. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, okay? But it is exclusive. So the gospel is for everyone, but it can only come from one, okay? And that's really the beauty of the Christian faith, I believe, is that it is by far the most worldwide religion that has ever existed. You even think about how many millions of Christians are in the United States, okay? The last statistic that I read or, or heard or, or saw was maybe 20% of all Christians worldwide are in North America, 20%. Basically, they're spread out pretty evenly on the major continents of the world. So Christianity is a worldwide religion. People of all different backgrounds worship the same Jesus. That is absolutely unique to the Christian faith. Now, yes, there are, especially in our country that's a melting pot, there are all sorts of religions here, but by percentage, it is minuscule based on where most of that religion is, right? So Islam, yeah, there's, there's Muslims in this country, and all, there's some all over the world, but 90 plus percent are all in one region of the world. Hindus, the same way. 90 plus percent are in one country, basically, in India, okay? So Christianity is absolutely unique to all religions in the fact that it is inclusively exclusive. So it is inclusive, but it is also exclusive at the same time. And what that means is, to kind of get more to the heart of the question, the true Christian faith, biblical Christianity, rejects the idea of universalism. Okay? Universalism to our Western culture especially is very appealing because universalism says in the end everybody gets in. In the end, God just saves everybody or almost everybody, right? That, but even Jesus says, what does he say? The, the way is narrow, right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Even Jesus 2,000 years ago said, no, that universalism is, doesn't work. It sounds nice. It's more palatable. It's more digestible. But it's just not case. So we reject that, that everyone in the end gets in. So that gives you a little bit more of a clue of how to maybe rightly, if not difficultly, answer this question. And Paul goes on. Let's go to Romans 3 now. Again, I told you we're going back and forth in Romans. Romans 3, he gets, again, more into the inclusivity and exclusivity of the gospel. So I want, I've got some color coding on, on this next scripture in Romans 3. I want you to see if you can find a theme in what Paul's saying in these seven verses, okay? There's a theme that he wants to make very clear here. Romans 3, start at verse number 20. Paul says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with God without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For We already read this, but let's look at it again. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Here it is again. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. 
This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. It's what we talk about salvation B.C., okay? God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So there's a lot to get through here, and I'm going to get through this part quickly to move on. But again, he's talking more about the salvation BC, people who came before Christ. They were saved in the same way we are saved after Christ, by grace, through faith. Their faith, looking forward to something they didn't quite, they're like, okay, the law's great, but I see some holes in it maybe that God will figure out later on. I think many ancient Jews saw that. I think many of them felt something there, like there's something sort of incomplete there's room for, imp- now they wouldn't maybe say room for improvement in the law, right? they would never say that, but that's maybe what their heart is telling them. There's something else that God's going to do, and I don't know what it is or what it's going to look like. And that's really where the whole Messiah thing comes in. The prophets are pretty clear. The Messiah is going to fulfill the law. They even said it hundreds of years before Jesus. So people had some sort of understanding that there was something yet to come. He even says Moses wrote about the gospel. Did he really? Absolutely. The prophets spoke about the gospel all the time. Jesus fulfills the law. Even, we mentioned this on Wednesday night a few weeks ago. In Luke 4, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee, and he is going to read the scripture that day in the synagogue. It just so happens that he's reading Isaiah 61, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. For he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and open the doors to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he rolls up the scroll and says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. One of the first times Jesus makes this claim Hey, the prophets were talking about. This guy. Who has two thumbs and is the Messiah? <laughs> this guy. That's what Jesus said over and over and over. And the people were so offended by this, they literally tried to throw him off a cliff. His hometown peeps, the people that lived on his block, that grew up with him, that watched him grow up, they are so offended by this truth, this exclusivity that is starting right then, that they try to kill him. But it's exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. Let me say it in, the, in these terms. The gospel minus Jesus is not the gospel. Salvation minus Jesus is not salvation. And that may already sound very offensive. Jesus even called the gospel offensive. He knew this is not going to sit well with a lot of people. Even my, my people, he knows it's, they're not going to like this. But it's always been inclusively exclusive. However... God knew this was a problem, possibly, for us to consider and work through, so he made the gospel accessible. And this maybe even becomes more offensive that we use that term. I use it on purpose. The gospel is accessible. What does Paul mean by that? Romans 10, again, back to Romans 10, verses 16 through 18. He says, but not everyone welcomes the good news. Well, duh, we know that. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? Not very many. So, he says, faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. Again, he's exclusive. But I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? He's talking about like people before Christ, right? People who are Jewish, believe the law, but reject Christ. Have they heard? He says, yes, they have. 
And then he quotes Psalm 19. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. Isaiah 19, or Isaiah, Psalm 19, it says, The heavens display the glory of God and the earth proclaims his handiwork. Day to day they pour forth speech, night to night. So it talks about, and let me go ahead and skip to Romans 1. Um, I don't know if you can tell. I had a direction I was going to go in with this, and then it, usually on Thursday is my doom day, because if there's going to be a change, it's on Thursday for some reason. So Thursday, God's like, hey, let's, let's not go there, and let's focus on Romans 10. And so I was going to spend a lot of time on Romans 1, and so I'm going to read this, because it fits into what he says in Romans 10, okay? It, the gospel's accessible. He's quoting, he's quoting uh, Psalm 19 about even creation itself preaches the gospel about Jesus, through which we can find faith, okay? But in Romans 1, he's already gone through that, so he's just passing it off quickly because he spends a lot of time at the very beginning setting up this premise. Romans 1, start at verse 18. Paul says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky... Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Skip down to verse 23. But the problem is people don't accept that. Instead of worshiping, verse 23, the glorious ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So Paul says, God has made it obvious to them. What has He made obvious? The gospel. How has He made it obvious? Through creation. It's what we would sometimes call general revelation or natural revelation. And he says it is so obvious, it is so clear, it is so easy to do this, that he, everyone is without excuse. So let me just answer the question fully. We'll keep fleshing it out, but in case you haven't figured out where Paul's going and where I think we have to go with him to answer this question, here's what I believe Paul is saying. Anyone who does not turn to Christ in faith for forgiveness of sins is destined to spend eternity in hell, even if they've never heard the gospel preached by a person or heard the name of Jesus spoken. That's what Paul's getting at. And it is offensive to say that. To, to my natural sensibility, it seems extremely unfair to say that, well, they didn't have a chance. Well, Paul in Romans 1, Romans 10, he said, they had a chance. It was obvious to them. If faith only comes through Christ, then the gospel is in creation somehow, some way. Okay, so, but let me ask this. We tend to, especially in Western cultures in America, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Let me flip the table and, and ask you, and maybe you'll say yes to this question, but maybe you won't. If we flip the script... Would it be fair that just because you've heard the gospel and yet rejected it, you are punished in hell, but just because someone hasn't heard the gospel, then they get in to heaven? Is that fair? Uh, you know, 
yes, like it sounds kind of fair, you know. And so some of us might say, maybe if they've really not had access, how are they held responsible? But I want to look at a main reason why, as much as I sort of brush up against Paul's argument here, as much as I want to say, well, yes, but, right, to the Bible, which is a bad direction to go anytime. One main reason, here's the main reason why I think Paul's argument stands. As much as I don't like it, as much as it offends most people that hear this, uh, it doesn't seem fair-minded, it goes against our human sensibilities, here is why I believe his argument makes sense and it stands on its own merit. Let's look at some of the final words Jesus Christ ever spoke, okay? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So let's put the question now with this verse in context. If... If we want to be fair, if people who've never even had an opportunity to hear a person share the gospel with them get a pass and get into heaven, then aren't these words of Jesus cruel? His final words, go and share the gospel to people who have not heard. Well, if ignorance gets me in, then leave me alone, right? If me not knowing is my golden ticket, then leave me alone. Don't tell me. Ignorance truly then would be ultimate bliss. But I don't think that that's what Jesus has in mind. I think he's got an urgency. If the final thing, the final thing someone tells you in their life is going to be pretty important to them, I would imagine. Right? Their final words to you. Or they, they write you a letter before they die. You're going to treasure those words. They're going to put what really matters in that letter. Jesus says, go and tell everyone you can, everywhere you can about the gospel. Why would he do that if they're okay without the gospel? Why would that, why would that be the mission of his movement if people apart from faith, even if they have not heard about Jesus, are okay? So, Paul has a solution to this that I want to share for a couple minutes as we start to wrap it up. And I say that loosely, so don't get antsy on me, okay? But Romans 10, going back to Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, we skipped that on purpose. We're going to come back. This is Paul's solution to this problem, okay? Romans 10, 13, Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? Good question. And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? That's the question we're asking, Paul. Glad you asked. And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Again, another quote from Isaiah. So what I want to do is look at this progression in Romans 10, 13 through 15 backwards. Okay, we're going to go 15, 14, 13. The goal of faith in Jesus is salvation. That's the goal. That's the aim. That's what we're going for here, salvation. But Paul says, how do we get there? Well, what he said all the way through Romans, even up to chapter 10, verse 13, is salvation comes when we believe. 
We put our faith, our belief in Jesus to be saved. But he's saying, well, yeah, but for someone to believe, wouldn't they have to hear? Okay, how are they going to believe unless they hear? And so here's the thing. Even when we share the gospel locally, we understand not everyone who hears the gospel will believe to salvation. We know this to be true. Again, that's not the question. The fairness question is not if they've heard and they've thought about it, they've had time to consider, and then they reject. We would say, well, that's maybe kind of mean of God in some ways, but we get it, okay? But we're talking about something different, how they have to hear to believe to be saved. And so he's saying, well, to hear, someone has to preach or share or proclaim the gospel to them. And he says, well, how is anyone going to preach unless they are sent? The greatest way that I've heard this explained is the only breakdown in this progression is the first step. The only breakdown here, like if people are sent, they will preach. If, if they preach, people will hear. Some will believe to salvation. The only breakdown is the first step. If people don't go, if people aren't sent. So this is why... We, I, and I, as a church, we're passionate about the gospel, and we're passionate about missions. So I don't know if you know this or not, but 10% of our budget goes to local and world missions, okay? So 5% of our budget goes to help plant churches all over the U.S. and some around the world, mainly in the U.S. 5% of our budget goes to world missions. We support a missionary family right now in a very sensitive part of the world, that I don't want to say on camera, uh, and, but you, if you know their story, you probably know about that. We're looking to support more missionaries, uh, hopefully this year. And then we also give to Speed the Light, which is an organization that gives uh, equipment, supplies, vehicles, audio, video equipment to do what they need to do, okay, all around the world. Because, why, okay, why? Why do we do missions? Why do missionaries pack up their bags, leave their families, or pack up their families in their bags, I don't know, and go around the world? Because we know people apart from Christ are destined for hell. They're not okay. Or else this whole thing doesn't make any sense at all. How are they going to hear if no one tells them? How are people going to tell them if they're not sent? And so we make it a part of our mission as a church to help to send people, to fund people so they can go and reach people who apart from Christ are in peril. They're doomed. And here's what I would even say as we're here. What if, crazy thought, just think, just, are you sitting down? You are, okay. What if God wanted to send you? I know it's crazy. I know it's weird. I'm not going to have you come up here and sign a pledge card or anything. But what if God wanted to send you to be part of this chain? What if he did? What if you're in your season of your life? I don't know what my next step is or I'm kind of lost. I'm kind of, hey, maybe God's given you this anxiousness about your current situation to free you up to go somewhere that no one's ever gone before. Maybe even for a short, maybe even for like a, a summer like, or, or for a, a, a year or whatever, okay? What if you're part of this solution to fix this problem to some remote group of people? What if? Just, just something to think about. Just something to think about. So again, I, I, I know that we, again, this direction may not be what we like to hear, and you may still disagree. You may not be convinced. Again, I, I have a hard time saying, okay, why does Jesus say go and tell if, if this works? <laughs> okay? Why, why, are the, why is the Christian church so focused on sending those people to people who've never heard if they're just okay? Logically, it does not compute to me, okay? So there's a, but there are, 
details we don't know and things we don't understand. But here, let me give you two scriptures as we close. Two things that we do know for sure about God. Two things that we know. Second Peter 3.9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter's saying, the only, and he's writing this like 30 years after Jesus has gone, okay? So think about how much more urgent and important this is now. He's saying the only reason that God has not told Jesus to come back to get his people for all eternity is his patience. Because he knows there are so many people that still need to hear the gospel. And so maybe if we wait long enough, more and more of them will hear and respond to the gospel. That, that's, that's what he's saying. There's nothing left holding Jesus back. None. That's it. He's just waiting as long as he can so that as many as can would reach repentance. It, again, I've said this in this series many times. Let me say it one more time, the final week of the series. God is not happy when people go to hell. He's not keeping a counter in heaven of how many souls are damned in hell. That's not what he's talking. He's not like, yeah, woo, party in it. That's not what he's not. No. He's like, let's get the upper room as full as we can. Let's get this heaven part really full. So that, that's the heart of God and the purpose of missions here. And then one more thing we know about God. Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9. Let the rivers clap their hands in glee. Let the hills sing out their songs of joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with fairness. So, let me just, I could be wrong in how I'm interpreting Paul here. Maybe Paul got it wrong. <laughs> no, I don't think he did. Maybe, maybe there's a, a door number two that I'm just not seeing, right? Maybe there's another thing, because we know that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. We know Psalm says he's going to judge with justice and fairness, so maybe there's another way that I don't know of, but what I read in the scriptures is, again, we'll start, we'll stop where we left, where we started. All have sinned, all sin and sinners must be punished. Jesus offers forgiveness of sin, and it's only Jesus in which that happens in any context. That's how I read this. That's how I read scripture in the Bible, and even the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we do know, no matter what, that Jesus is fair. God is just. He is righteous. So this is a challenging question and a challenging answer. And hopefully, though, it's maybe been motivating for us, eye-opening to us. Like, is, is it possible, even in our community, there are people that have never heard about Jesus? It's possible, and they're just as lost as someone who's heard and rejected the gospel over and over. I mean, it's the same, it seems to be the same fate. So time's ticking. So the question is, what are we going to do about that? And Jesus says, he says that the harvest is ripe for, it's ripe for, the fields are ripe for harvest. And he says that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. So he says, pray for more laborers in the harvest. So we want to we want to be the laborers in the harvest that are helping to pe point people to Jesus, telling them, hey, you're in trouble spiritually. Your eternity is in jeopardy, like spiritually speaking, okay? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the way that we can change our eternal destination. So maybe today's been motive, maybe it's been frustrating and angering. My email, stephen at firstcenturykc.com. Uh, if you have any complaints or you know, criticisms, I'm happy to hear those, seriously, because uh, it's not an easy thing to study or talk about or explain or wrap your head around, but again, hopefully we're motivated. The gospel's a big deal, 
Jesus thought it was a big deal. He said, hey, they're lost without me. They need to know me and find me. And it's, it's up to us to do that, whether here or far, to help heaven be as full as it can be.